you know, we could have been born in any century, in any time, right? But we were born in this particular time and what were we put on this earth to do in the time that we were born in? And I believe once you find that out, then the sky is the limit. And I think that, you know, why I was put here in this particular time was to go through what I went through to be able to show people that you can go from that and still be okay. Welcome to the Anonymous Lear Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Chura. And today I have the absolute pleasure of talking to former gang leader, current change advocate, Curtis Toller. You may recognize Curtis's name from a previous episode I did with New York Times bestselling author of the book, High Conflict, Amanda Ripley. She interviewed Curtis for her book because of the immense pressure and adversity he had endured from a young age and how he changed his life and got out of conflict. I'm thrilled for you to hear his story because for me, it made a deep and profound impact. I got to tell you, sometimes in life, you just meet people whose journey is so remarkable that it is impossible not to reflect on your own life and to put things into perspective. To me, there is nothing as inspiring as someone who has persevered and to say his story contained adversity just really doesn't do it justice. That being said, before we get too far, I'd like to thank you for being a supporter of this show. And if you would like to continue to support, please just subscribe. It's pretty easy or leave a comment. It means a ton to me. You can also check out our event, Go. This will be a day that will light a fire for you to finish your year strong. The event will take place in the Chicagoland area Saturday, August 21st, featuring Rich Roll, Olympic gold medalist Jordan Burroughs, Army Ranger and, and decorated war veteran Cedric King, and more. These speakers are top athletes and have incredible mindset and a life story to share with you. You can find out more at notamusthere.com forward slash go and use the discount code NAT2021 for 10% off. Okay, now normally I'd give you a brief look into what you're about to hear, but in this case, I feel like it would do disservice to Curtis's story because he tells so much of it to me on the show. And I think you're going to be blown away from what this man has went through and overcame. So get your shoes on, go outside, take a deep breath, and get ready to be moved. Welcome, Curtis, to the Anonymous There podcast. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's an honor to have you today, and I think I was telling you off air that I was introduced to you or your story by Amanda Ripley, who wrote the book High Conflict. She was a recent guest on my podcast, not almost there, and I was completely intrigued in your story and wanted to uh, wanted to get you on here. So it's an honor again to have you, and um, really, I think the listeners are going to get a lot out of this conversation. First, though, I wanted to start with your story. I know it's super powerful, and you've uh, you've done so much in your life for the community. But you had a an interesting beginning to it all, and I just want to mm-hmm. kind of back up to where you kind of came from in your upbringing, and uh, and what happened in your in your adolescence. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I think, you know, um, my upbringing, you know, what I've grown to learn is not a lot. There's not a lot of differences between my upbringing and a lot of other folks who've come up 
you know, in the urban ghettos, <laughs> if you will. Um, but I'll start by saying I kind of moved around like my family was in the military, but we weren't. Uh, my mom just moved to a lot of different communities for a various amount, for various reasons. Um, and so that gave me this kind of outlook on the, the West and South and the East sides of Chicago, which are all in their own way dynamically unique. Um, and so I always start off by saying, uh, you know, you don't get to choose who your parents are and your parents don't really get the choice to choose who the kids are. So it's a two-way street there, right? <laughs> yeah. And so for me, uh, I think the term that good girls like bad boys was really uh, something that I think that my mom went through and I think a lot of a lot of a lot of people go through that. So she had me at at a really young age. She probably was about fifteen, going on sixteen. And at that time, my dad was one of the founders of uh, a Chicago street gang, and he was relatively young as well. He probably was sixteen. And so, just the dynamic of having you know really really young parents, and they were trying to find their their way, but not find their way their way together. <laughs> so. Uh, in just my opinion, my mom had, uh, you know, this 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 way of choosing guys that were a little uh, rough around the edges, including my dad. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, you know, she chose guys who were uh, really connected to the street life. Uh, and so I think that was really my introduction to what I call the other side or, you know, the underworld or, you know, gang life or whatever people may want to want to label it as was through uh, first my my first my dad and then through some of the folks who my mom um, began to have relationships with. And did you have siblings shortly thereafter or are you the oldest? I'm the oldest. I didn't have siblings until further down the line. I'm, I'm probably about nine years older than um than my siblings yeah got it yeah so your your dad's the leader of a street gang what what gang was it uh the folk want to hustle vice laws i wouldn't say he was the leader he was one of the founding members uh, got it. of it yeah got it so he's the founding member you're born um so you're kind of born into that life then right essentially <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Even though, you know, at that particular time, I didn't understand then, but I understand more now being a being a parent and being a father who was deeply involved in the street life, what he was going through. You know, being a kid, I didn't understand why my, my pops wasn't in my life. But but again, now I understand now uh, that, you know, we there's this misnomer that when you don't have anything to give your kids, then you kind of shy away or stay away from them. And that's some of the things that my uh, that my dad went through. And then, unfortunately, at a, a very young age, along with a lot of others during that period, that, that, that 70s period, you had a lot of folks coming from, you know, like the Vietnam War. My dad wasn't a war vet, but unfortunately, he got caught up uh, in that thing where a lot of folks were coming back using heroin, and he became a heroin addict. Got it. So how was your early life growing up because I mean that that in itself that story you just told me is traumatic but you as a kid uh, your your father is not around how was the relationship with your mother 
Oh, man, me and my mom, you know, by her being a young parent, it seemed like it was more of a, for lack of a better term, brother-sister type of, you know, type of relationship because she was trying to find her way being being such a young a young parent. And um, I think I alluded to that, you know, I felt that she got a, you know, that she kind of connected with a lot of the bad, a lot of bad guys. And this one particular guy um, who she was dealing with at that time, I've grown to find out that he was a pimp and a drug dealer. And, uh, you know, he was very abusive to my mom and, and also myself. And, um, you know, that was really the first time that I ever saw a weapon. He had a, a, a Tommy gun under under his bed and I saw it. And, you know, being a child that makes you, you know, you get intrigued by those things. And then you kind of also start to believe that, you know, seeing your mom or seeing other people violently beating up beaten up or you know all of these verbal insults you know I kind of felt that that may have been the norm unfortunately because that's what I grew up around and how old were you then when you saw the gun I had to be about seven seven or eight yeah and then I, I imagine from there um, she had various boyfriends or did she stick with that guy for a while she was with that guy for a while and i guess you know sometimes you have to be careful for what you pray for because i prayed for his demise and uh you know he he ended up dying um how did he die you know some folks say from natural cause i believe he probably had an overdose i mean you know what i mean i was so young and we never really talked about like like his death but he, he eventually died I imagine now, just in the chronological order, now you're 10 years old yeah. or so. So, yeah. so what happens then in your life? So in, so at this particular age, uh, we're living on the west side of Chicago. And, and it was this time, you know, where uh, you have this this racial divide, unfortunately, within your own community. And, and what I mean by that is that I was kind of picked on because I was light-skinned with curly hair, <laughs> right? And so um, I wasn't a violent person at first because I didn't have any older siblings. So I used to take a lot of shit, right? You know, people used to pick on me, even jump on me. And so, you know, I would tell my mom, and then I would talk to my cousins and even my grandmother, and unfortunately, as parents, sometimes we give our children the wrong uh, kind of in- information or concept. So what they told me is, is that if I couldn't beat them, then to pick up something, right? Because it was more than one. And unfortunately, that went from me, you know, picking up rocks to sticks to hammers to knives, then to guns. Wow. So then from from that point, when you were picking up guns you weren't even a teenager yet no i wasn't a teenager and and it's ironic it's kind of funny now that the the first gun that i picked up uh, it uh it was a gun that my grandmother used to have in her drawer dresser drawer and i took it out you know just clowning around with with, with some of the guys and was shooting it in there and then uh, one of my friends was like let me take a shot right so he took a shot and you're shooting in the house or outside 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 in the air And my friend was like, damn it, this is a starter pistol. This isn't a real gun. So my first gun that I thought was a gun wasn't really actually a gun. It was a, it was a starter pistol. Wow. So then at, at that time, you guys are around kind of playing with this gun. So then how does it evolve from there into, 
into other things. Yeah. And so like a lot of folks do, I got into to trouble that I really didn't have to get into. It was more of me trying to prove myself to the guys that I was hanging out with. So we were poor, but we didn't know it. Right. My grandmother had a, you know, a decent job. So like some of the things that I wanted in life, uh, she was able to, to give me. So I started uh, what we call snatching grab on the west side of Chicago. And that was taking the ball bearings out of skates and they would bust windows easily for some reason. Like when you throw the ball bearing, it would shatter, shatter a window and we would snatch purses. And so I think that was really my introduction to the crime life, if you will, was, you know, what we call snatch and grab. And and you were just then a then a teenager, right? At the time, still not a teenager. At this time, okay. I'm probably <laughs> I'm probably eleven and had uh, joined uh, my first street gang. Got it. And how do you go about joining a street gang at eleven? At this particular time, uh, they had this thing um, where uh, they handcuffed me to like a small tree. They beat my chest up pretty bad, and then they had me bring. Then they had me fight. Uh, my friend who was older than me, and, you know, he kind of got the best of me. Uh, then I fought a couple more guys, and then, you know, I was part of I was kind of jumped in, yeah. Got it. And what street gang was that at the time? It was the same street gang that my father <laughs> was the founder, was one of the founding members of, yeah. Did, did you have street cred knowing that, I mean, people knew he was the founder of it, and that it was You know what, I, no? didn't, I didn't mention that a lot back then. You know what I mean? I really didn't even mention who my dad was or what his position was uh, coming up because he, you know, probably because he wasn't in my life like that. But I, one thing that I can say is that he kind of was in my life, kind of was in my wife, my life vicariously, like through my grandmother. You know, she would buy me bikes and things and say it was from him. You know, so that was the connection that he kind of kept with me. And he would pop by, you know, every now and again. And so, yeah. Yeah. Now in the street gang, yeah, mm-hmm. it's official. Yeah, you're snatch and grab. Mm-hmm. How does the how's the crime or the series of things the gang does evolve? It, it took a while for things to evolve for me, as it relates to really when, when you think about the crime element of it. Um, and so, uh, just fast forward a few years. So then my mom meets this this other guy through her best friend at work. Uh, and ironically, he was uh, serving time in a federal institution for bank robbery. Uh, and when I first met him, he was like this behemoth of a guy. I mean, he probably lifted everything on a weight pound. It's real, it's really big guy. And um, <clears throat> uh, she eventually married him and he was my stepfather. And I thought things were, you know, would, would be different but unfortunately they weren't. He was also violent towards her and myself as well. Um, And so now we've moved from the west side of Chicago to the south side of Chicago, and I'm going through this physical and verbal abuse stuff all over again with a totally different guy. And um, I had this misnomer in my mind that one day I could be bigger than him to, and you know, kind of defeat this guy. And so uh, I would uh, collect cans and bottles and, and turn them in for money. And I, I got enough money and I bought this really small weight set. And um, 
our apartment was small as well, so I had to put the weight set in my kitchen. So I would be lifting these weights uh, in the kitchen, you know, in my mind, thinking that one day I would be stronger than my stepdad. And so I was out with some friends out south, and we were just uh, riding our ride, riding our bikes, and we rode past this this place, and it looked like a theater from the outside. And I saw this 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 man who was surrounded by other men, and you could just tell the way that they were formed, uh, that they were his security. And he was in front of this black Cadillac, and he was huge as well. And so in my mind, I was like, this guy here could defeat my stepdad, right? Who is him? I mean, who is this guy? Not who is, yeah. who is this guy? And so I wanted to learn more about him. And so I just started, you know, asking people that were around who who, who he was and he he was a guy who eventually became the leader of another organization who who I became uh, a part of, and his name was Jeff Jeff Fort, the founder of the Black Peace Stones, and at that particular time was an El Rukin. So I joined the El Rukins at probably about twelve or thirteen years old. So how does that how does that work? He you just switch from one gang to the next. So officially, you know, me being so young, I probably was never a part <laughs> of the other gang, right? You know, officially. It. it was like yeah. unofficial that I was a part part of this other thing. Um, but this was an official thing. Uh, we had to, to attend meetings. Uh, you know, that was a criteria. And another thing is that this group had a strong Islamic undertone or overtone to it as well. And so that was one of the things that, that kind of drew me in. And, you know, I think there's this other misnomer that folks, you know, were, were thinking that the older guys were, were having us do these violent acts of crime. But for me, being a part of the El Rukans, that was totally different. You know, they made sure I went to school. They made sure I went to football practice and all those kind of things. So this became like my family, my second family. And then, you know, people all over knew that the El Rukans didn't take shit either, right? <laughs> you know? Uh, and so that was kind of like this, uh, this garment of protection that I felt that I had with this organization. Do you remember your first time meeting Jeff? Uh, it was ironic that it was ironic because I never met him in person. Um, shortly thereafter, uh, he was arrested for uh, conspiracy against the United States of America. Hmm. So he's he's arrested for a conspiracy that had to do something with the, the gang violence or drugs or what, what was it? I mean, I think it was a combination of 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 all. Um, it was cons- not only conspiracy; it was conspiracy and terrorism. Uh, against the United States of America. Um, you know, he was convicted and tried for uh, having a deal with Nomar Gaddafi, saying that uh, that our group would blow up downtown Chicago or, or something like that. And uh, one of the people who were affiliated with the El Rukins was caught buying a rocket launcher. Wow. And is that anything you fathomed at the time or did you realize the scale of that when you were, you were younger? Cause I imagine like you're joining this gang, mm-hmm. you, you look up to this guy, you, you're kind of joining it for reasons to protect yourself and your family from your now stepfather. Mm-hmm. So, 
so all good reasons. And then all of a sudden you find out that the leader of this gang is essentially a terror or, you know, con- conspiring to be a terrorist. Like what was going through your mind then? You know, if that, if that part of it was actually going on, they kind of kept that away from us. You know what I mean? And so what happened was, is that all of the leadership, you know, I think it was about 30 plus guys were locked up in this conspiracy and this terrorism, um, uh, this terrorist, this terrorism act. Uh, and so what it did is, is something that's happening that we see here in, in Chicago now is that it left us to be in leadership. And we're 16 year old kids. right? Now we've become the leaders of this organization, if you will. And, and that didn't go so well. I mean, to a certain degree, it was OK. But now that I look back on it, I think that we are some of the reasons uh, for a lot of the violence that's going on today here in Chicago. So before I ask how that changed, just out of curiosity, why was were were gangs different back then in the sense that the leadership wanted you to go to school, wanted you to be a good citizen? Like how how is it more from from what it was then to what it is today? And, and when I look back, being like uh, this quote-unquote gang historian, it seems like every time that drugs came into play, there was this shift. So even when you think about, you know, the El Rukins when they were first the Blackstone Rangers. Uh, uh, and then you had the, the group who eventually became our rivals were the, the Black Disciples or the Black Gangster Disciples. There was this, if you noticed, in everything or every name that I gave, black was in the front of it. So there was this real sense of pride in the black power movement. So, and it was just a way really at first that they were founded on really to protect their communities. And then, you know, when I, like I said, in the seventies, when that's, when the heroin and stuff started to come in, I think that's when some of the trajectory started coming in because there was money and stuff being brought in through, through the, uh, the drug trade. And then, you know, with us, when I think about, the late 80s, early 90s, when the crack epidemic kind of hit, that's when our kind of ideology of of what the organization was founded on kind of shifted. Got it. And does that, right around that time, you guys find yourself as leaders of the gang, how does the leadership mindset change? Is it now all about the drug trade and more, is it more violent or how is that different? Yeah, I think it was I think it was some of all of that kind of wrapped up in everything, right? You got to think that first of all that we're these young kids with all of this kind of stuff thrown on thrown on top of us. Now there was always this kind of street uh or gang war between the folks and the people nation, right? That's the 5-point star and the 6-point star. There was always this kind of feud or this rival since the early 60s, right? So we, we, we took on that banner, or we took on that war. On top of now, we're getting all, we're getting <laughs> lump sums of money from the illegal drug trade. And we also are able, now we're bringing a lot, we're bringing weapons uh, into this. And now we're fighting over drug turf. We're fighting these crazy drug wars and we're still these young kids <laughs> right uh and so that that's what happened in the 90s and when you look at statistics and it's nothing that i'm you know bragging on but you know 
that was one of the highest murder rates that we've ever seen in Chicago is when I was, you know, in leadership, uh, part of leadership of, of one of the Chicago street gangs here. And just, just as the Chicago street gangs were emerging, was the organized crime, like as far as the mob, was there any contact with those two groups or was that fading out? Like, how did that That work? was fading out. Early on, there was a lot of contact, you know, uh, when you think about that. But by the time I started uh, getting more deeper involved, our thing was more with the, uh, with the Colombian drug cartel. Got it. So you had direct ties with the with the cartel? Yes. There. And then were other gangs emerging at at that time? Yes. Uh all of us were <laughs> partaking in a whole lot of violence and a whole lot of uh drugs were coming into our communities. And then but because of the drug trade, was that creating other gangs, like rival gangs? So there were always rival gangs, right? <laughs> it was always the people nation versus the f- folks nation. And at that, that, at that time, it was probably 10 or 15 subgroups in both that kind of made this big collaborative, if that makes sense, on both sides. So there was always this kind of tension and friction, you know, in Chicago between these two different superpowers, which were the people and the folks nation. But, you know, once more money began to get involved, it seems like the more violent all of us began to become. So when you hear something like the Crips and the Bloods and the Latin Kings, like are they all subgroups under one of those two between the people and the folks nation? Or how does that work? No. So the Crips and the Bloods never really made their way to Chicago because we were already organized here. So we never let the Crips or the Bloods in. Now the Latin Kings was the Latin Kings is actually the first cousins. We call them our first cousins of the group that I was a part of. So they were under the People Nation's banner. Got it. And what other what other groups, what are other cousins or subgroups are under like the People's Nation? Uh, the People's Nation uh, was so you had vice lords and you had different branches of vice lords, the travelers, the unknowns, the conservatives, uh, the Black Peastones or the Black Stone Rangers, uh, the Latin Kings. Those were like the probably the biggest when you think about the people's nation. I hope I'm not forgetting anybody. Um, Vice Lords, Stones, Latin Kings. And then on the other side, you had the disciples, uh, the black gangsters. And you had the gangster disciples, uh, Spanish disciples and a few and a few others. Got it. So. This is just extremely curious. I'm extremely curious about this because I, in one sense, I didn't grow up too far from this, but it seems like another world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of where the proximity of where I, where I lived. The, the groups now, so the, the, the subgroups, was there like ever a large meeting with all of the groups together that represented the People's Nation or how does that yeah. work? Yeah, but they were more aligned in the prison system than on the streets. Uh, because on the streets, we would have these feuds amongst each other a lot sometimes. You know what I mean? But in the prison system, they were more aligned than, than, than on the streets. What would cause the feuds? Uh, uh, turf. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, 
a lot of misunderstandings or if uh, women, <laughs> you know, yeah. so some of those were some of the major things that caused a lot of the feuds. I, and just ego a lot of times, you know, a lot of just right. bravado, you know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And when you say you say turf is someone's like walking in the territory or selling drugs in it in a territory. Yeah. Like you know, trying to, you know, we call it set up shop. You know, you have folks, you know, people. And when I say people to folks, I'm not referring to the actual gang alliance. But, you know, you have people that would, you know, come into a different neighborhood and, you know, try to start selling drugs or come into a different neighborhood and start talking to some of the women that's in that neighborhood or you know, just have an argument with someone who was a part of another organization and that would cause the, and that those are some of the things that would cause these gang feuds. Got it. So you're, you're now emerging as this leader. You're mm-hmm. the guy that you wanted to kind of be your mentor is in, is in prison mm-hmm. um, or he's, he's obviously um, indicted by, yeah, by he, the federal government. Prison. So he's doing his thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Who do you f- now find a different mentor or how do you evolve your leadership at that point? So uh, I need to step back for, for just a, a moment. So um, I, I know you probably read in the book or, uh, that um, my stepfather ends up killing my mom and I find her in the garage um, at this particular time, you know, and I always said, no counselor or nobody showed up at my door to give me what I needed for that trauma that I was experiencing with the loss of with the loss and of my mom. You were how old then, Curtis? Oh, uh, probably sixteen. I'm so sorry that happened. By the way, I know yeah. you get into it. I'm sorry. Yeah, and um, it changed. You know, I was already going through a lot of this physical and verbal abuse and trauma. And now uh, my best friend is gone, you know, and she's taken away from me violently. Um, And so there was a period of time that I felt that I didn't have anything to live for. Uh, And so I became extremely violent uh, to any and everyone. Like I just took on this whole different character (laughs) and, and personality shift. And so with that being said, um, uh, probably uh, a year after, almost a year after my mom uh, was killed, uh, I was engaged in the street, in the street war on the streets. And uh, I was shot in the head. Um, That was the first, no, that was the third time I was shot when I got shot in the head. So I had been shot twice before that. And this is my third time being shot and I was shot in, you know, in the head and it was, you know, pretty bad at the time, but, you know, I was able to overcome it. Um, a lot of, a lot of my friends, you know, give me a lot of, <laughs> they make these jokes and they call me kind of shit face. And it's because they took a, they took a skin graft from my ass to do plastic surgery and put it on, <laughs> on my head. <laughs> oh my <God. laughs> so, you know, I had to, you know, endure some of that a little bit. Um, And then shortly thereafter, uh, I went to uh, a maximum penitentiary for, for what was that? I think it was a first degree attempt, attempted murder. Um, And here I am, you know, this this young guy now in the 
a maximum penitentiary, which was Stateville at the time. And you're how old at that time? 17? 17. Yeah. 17, 18. So, so I can't just gloss over the fact that you were shot three times and now this time in the head. Do you remember that or was it, did you just black out for a period of time after that? No, I I remember it. (laughs) You do? (laughs) I remember it. Yeah. I never, and, and it's crazy because, uh, I made it my business not to lose consciousness because I believe that I, you know, I believe it was because I saw all these films and they're like, don't, don't go to sleep. Don't go to sleep. It's slapping people on the face when they get shot. So I can remember seeing that. So in my mind, I was like, I'm not going to lose consciousness. I can remember laying on the porch and the officers came. And when they came, I guess I was bleeding so bad that I just started to, you know, pass out a little bit. And I could hear them talking, you know, you know, saying that we could write this guy off. And I immediately, you know, open my eyes back up. So I remember, I remember pretty much everything. I can also remember being an idiot and going to the hospital and arguing with with, with some of the folks that were working on me because they were cutting, I had just bought a new outfit. So they were cutting my pants and I was like, (laughs) damn it, I'm not shot, shot down and you don't have to cut my pants. (laughs) You know what I mean? But now I know that they were just trying to see, you know, did I have any other bullet wounds anywhere else? You know (laughs) So were you just on your porch walking outside? Like what time of the day was it when that happened? This had to be high noon. And we had got into this conflict with this other with this other gang, which I thought was resolved. And I thought that we were meeting to kind of advocate for this peace thing amongst us. And uh, what ended up happening was another young man who wasn't privy to the meeting, who was a part of my organization, uh, kind of saw us walking down the street and uh he wasn't for no peace at that particular time and he started opening fire on the other group and they started opening fire on me because i was the closest to him wow so then when something like that happens you're you're in the hospital you wake up are you just after you're recovered are you handcuffed to the bed yeah, I was handcuffed <laughs> for a moment. <laughs> and then eventually, you know, I you know, they didn't have enough to, you know, to to keep me to keep me uh in custody right. and uh my friends actually came and uh broke me out of the hospital. What? Was, yeah. I mean, when I think about there? when I think about some of the dumb stuff that 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 I was doing and that we were doing, man. They came and, you know, I'm, my head is all wrapped up and shit. I haven't even had the surgery yet. And they're like, man, we got to get you up out of here before, you know, the police come back. And also there was this big party that was going on that I felt that I had an obligation to attend. So I go to the party, bullets still in my head. And guess what? We get into a damn fight, man. And I just, and I just think about how dumb that was now, you know. Yeah. Wow. And my auntie was so mad at me because she was a nurse at the hospital at that particular time. And she was calling around like, where are you? You you know, you got a damn bullet in your head. You're gone. I'm like, yeah, I'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) So what happened after the fight? Did you end up going back to the hospital? I probably went back to my aunt convinced me to come back to the hospital. It probably was about two or three days later. And then they did the surgery. I mean, the, the ironic thing about it is that I found out is that, you know, one of the hardest parts on your body is your knee, your elbow. And then that 
part right over your eye is really, really hard, right? And so what happened is, is that the bullet entered there and it took away a lot of the velocity of it by going through that really hard part right over the top of my eye. So it just landed right behind there. And, you know, they eventually took it out. They had to do plastic surgery. But, you know, I think they did a good job, if I could say so myself. Yeah. Yeah, that's an incredible story. <laughs> so then, I mean, we could spend all day just on that scene, yeah. but, but I know we don't have all day. Uh, so what happens from there? Now you're having surgery at the hospital. You're, when, when do you, is there a gap in time be, be Not before really. you get arrested? Pro- or? Probably about 60 days, <laughs> 60 days after that I'm, I'm, I'm arrested and, you know, um, I was supposed to be going to this medium institution because of my age at that time, but we end up uh, having this big, this big uh, gang fight in what we call the chow hall. That's like the lunchroom in, in the penitentiary, and, and they removed me. And this is when I know things started getting real because they put me in segregation. <clears throat> and uh, I had a celly in seg. And uh, they would give out these bags and on the bag, it would have like this letter and this number and that would represent where you're going. And so I was like, man, I'm going to a a minimum institution. And he was like, let me see your bag. And I think the bag said K5. And he was like, (laughs) no, you're going to the big house, buddy. And I'm like, why Why am I going there? And so I went in front of the administration and, you know, they had uh, like this hearing and they said that uh, that I was being uh, charged with exciting a riot and also being a, uh, a leader of a, a street gang. And so I couldn't go to a minimum institution. I had to go to a maximum. Before you, you ended up in that place, did you know the police were looking for you? Were you hiding out or did they c- catch you by surprise? Uh, I kind of knew they were looking for me, but I ended up catching another, a whole nother case. Yeah, I caught another case and, you know, they kind of combined the two. And then uh, I did what you call a a plea deal, which, you know, a lot of black and brown folks do. You know, we don't, you know, go to trial. They they bring us an offer. We take it. And and that's what ended up happening. Wow. So you you brought brought in the station, then the the detectives talked to you or DA and then all of a sudden you're you're in you're in jail. Is that kind of how it? Yeah. In the county. Yeah, yeah, now I'm in the county jail with no bond, and uh, and then I'm shipped off. So what's the significance now between medium um, security, uh, the, the smaller penitentiary or the medium-sized one, versus maximum, the one you know, you're going into? <laughs> Just the amount of violence and the convictions and the people that are there. I can remember my mother telling me, uh, you're crazy to rich respect, you know, you do stuff that's crazy in the Richard Speck. And I, you know, I had no idea who Richard Speck was, but I, I got a chance to see him in Stateville. And that was, you know, one of the, the scariest people that I think that I've ever saw in my life. And I, you know, I came up thinking that I was a kind of tough guy, but there was this, this look of just horror or terror when I, when I got a chance to see him. Um, and, and then, for those- you know, for those that don't know, what did he do? Uh, Richard Speck, uh, he's the one that killed uh, he killed uh, a lot of nurses <laughs> in Chicago. He was a serial killer. Yeah, that's crazy. So now, now you find yourself in a prison. 
you're 17 years old, you're with one of the most notorious serial killers in that day. Um, yeah. What's going through your mind then? Man, how did I end up here? <laughs> you know, but I still couldn't, you know, show that I was actually afraid, you know. I ended up, you know, befriending a guy who was a part of my organization as well. And his sentence was natural life in 20 years. So that meant they wanted him to die. And if he came back to life, he would still have to do 25 years. So he eventually became like my mentor while I was in there. Um, kind of saved my life uh, because I went in there, you know, with these really, really hardened guys as a young guy coming off the street saying that I was a shot caller. And, you know, that didn't go too well with the folks who were already, already in the prison system. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, what, what's a shot caller mean? Meaning a person. So I was running my particular organization on the streets, right? right. And so You're a lot of times, essentially. Yeah. So a lot of times, you know, especially being as young as I was at that particular time, it doesn't transfer over <laughs> to the institution. Right. So now you're in there. There's a whole other hierarchy mm -hmm. right in there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and do you feel like, are people looking at you like you need to kind of start over and prove yourself in there? Like how's, yeah, how's that work? E exactly that, you know, exactly that, you know, um, I ended up being um, the guy who I just referenced. I ended up being his personal security while I was there. Yeah, and so that was a little that was a little different. What does that mean that you're just with him as much as you can be? Yeah, looking out. Yeah, yeah. So I was his personal security. So everywhere he went, uh, I had to go. Uh, he had a job in the visiting room as the, as the cameraman. So. Uh, at that particular time, the inmates kind of ran the jail. And so uh, I would I would be allowed to come pick him up, to take him to work and also come pick him up from work, uh, you know, without being searched or anything. So that was just the kind of how the system went at that particular time. And was he trying to reform his life at the time? And was he giving you any sort of positivity in your life uh, besides it? Was he a mentor, I guess, in a, in a good sense or a mentor in, in the sense of he was teaching you the ropes of how the prison system worked? Uh, I think both. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that he did, you know, instill in me is that I didn't have to be this wild off the chain kind of kid to get stuff done. Right. He would tell me that, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of time to do. And the best thing that I could do was leave and be alive, <laughs> you know. Um, and so uh, he did give me a lot of instruction on that. He gave me a, a lot of good life lessons, but he didn't tell me not to be a part of the organization anymore. And so what eventually happened is that I ended up having some juice right from the street, not really sanctioned by anyone to a certain degree, but sanctioned by some folks going to the prison, kind of reclaiming my status in prison and being released with more status than I had before I went in. So, so then how does your, 
time in prison evolve? Oh, um, I didn't do that much time. I did about, I did about two years on that bit. So, um, it evolved and it also gave me a position that was backed by everyone that was a part of the organization, if that makes sense. Uh, so now I have the blessings, if you will, of the hierarchy to go out on, onto the streets with this power or this rank. At, at that point, were you thinking at all about changing your life and doing something different and getting out? No, I was really thinking about trying to get to an institution where my stepdad was to kill him. I was going to ask or, you about that. Yeah, uh, that really was my driving, <laughs> my driving force. Uh, I never ran into him. I think he had a block that I couldn't, that we couldn't be in the same uh, institution. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I thought a little bit about doing something different, but at that particular time, you know, being in the gang or the street culture was my identity. Before, so I don't forget to ask, whatever happened to him? Um, he was tried and convicted and given twenty about twenty five years for murder and uh, um, murder and robbery. So is he still in prison today? No. So then you um, you get out. You're you're trying to get back in to find him, essentially. And you're now at an elevated position. What mm-hmm. happens next? <laughs> so during the time that I was in, uh, some of the guys who I knew or became really close friends with were now heavy into uh, the narcotics trade. Uh, and he was kind of running this particular area and I was kind of like his um, uh, in the mob terms consigliore or the underboss <laughs> when I got out um, uh, and then he was killed and I took over his position wow so so you're you're rising the ranks and then was there any time at that point or was it that you you thought like I guess like at what point then? Now you're, what, like just under 20 or you're around 20 years yeah, old? I'm around 20, yeah, yeah. When do you, when, I imagine like just there's an evolution of things that continue to happen around the mm-hmm. same. Is anything different happen around that time or is it just more of the same? It's kind of more of the same. Um, you know, we, we're really violent. Uh, I'm running this particular area. Um but then my son is born, um, and that's, I think, the first time that I kind of actually started to think a little differently, uh, because I thought that he actually was coming to replace me because he looked so much like me. He's, yeah, he looked so much like me that I thought he was my replacement, so I actually thought that I was going to have an untimely death. So you're, you're 21 when you have him, or... Yeah, about yeah, twenty one. 
Okay. Yeah. And then at that point, you start to think about how to reform your life or when does that start? I start thinking about it a little bit. I think the things that I started to to do was be less violent, but then I I end up getting a drug, a drug and a gun charge and I go back to jail. I go back to prison. And how did that feel? Do you recall at the time, like knowing you were a new father and not being able to see your kid? Was that wearing on you? Oh man. Yeah, it felt terrible, man. I was like, shit, you know? And so, uh, I get another short bit, uh, like three, I think they gave me like three and a half years. You know, during that time, you know, and, and it's one thing that, you know, being involved in, in narcotics and, and, you know, the street life, we knew that if we got, if we had money and we had a good lawyer that we, we would, in our minds, we would be okay. And so I ended up being okay. I ended up uh, only uh, getting like three and a half years and doing about two years off of that, off of that bit and, and coming back home. And so when I came home on this particular time, I thought in my mind that I really wanted to do something different. So I ended up getting a job uh, at Renner, not Renner Center, Aronson's Furniture, which is a furniture place. Yep. And I was doing pretty good. I was, you know, I was doing okay. But then um, a group of young ladies came in and I can remember it as if it were yesterday and they started laughing and, and, and cracking jokes and my pride you know was just shot and like you used to be running shit now you running furniture <laughs> you know and uh I kind of let that get the best of me and, and I quit my job and you know went back to the drug trade now when you had that job were you still technically in the gang or how does that work I was technically in by title, if that makes sense. But I wasn't, you know, I was still going, you know, visit the guys, hang out with them, you know, give some sense of uh, leadership. But I wasn't as involved, if that makes sense, at that particular time. Yeah, I was kind of distancing myself. Is there a feeling at that time that you there's it's mandatory to be involved like do you feel like that there's like is there a way out like it it almost seemed like there could have been a way out but mm-hmm. because of what happened um there wasn't or because of what happened you went back is it is that is that factual like is it easy to get out of a gang in that regard like you can just start working and just kind of fade out and not not have to be a part of it anymore for some it is for others is a lot it's a lot more intricate and a lot more you know difficult i mean but for me uh getting in in the ranking position that i was in and knowing you know a lot of the guys who were in the hierarchy you know a lot of them were okay with me doing something different you kind of know what i mean they were like okay we get it You know, but then there was also this tug of war with me uh, feeling that if I left and, you know, I could be honest and candid with you. Sometimes I still get that feeling to this day that, you know, that I have this obligation to these folks who looked up to me. And I didn't want to let them down. And And I saw the direction that they were going in. 
And um, like I say, there's, there was this kind of pull between good and bad, you know, that was happening happening with me. Uh, but I was still heavily involved, you know, in, in the drug trade. Then I, I kind of shifted that uh, a little bit. Um, and my, uh, the folks around me were getting indicted. And so here again, I'm thinking that, you know, I had said in my mind that I'm about to go back to prison. Uh, I was always a study, a studier of the law. So I figured that if I was indicted on, on what I felt that I would be indicted on, that I probably probably could cop a, uh, cop a plea for about 10 years in, in the federal system and do about eight and a half. So I had put my mind to that this was what was going to happen. And, and, and my son probably was graduating third, third or fourth grade. It was, a, you know, he was really young. You know, he was singing a song by Chicago. You're the meaning in my life. You're the inspiration. He was singing it to you? No, they, they were on stage. The whole group of them were singing, oh, singing a song. Yeah. And this thing, man, just came, you know, came over me. It was like, what am I doing? Like, you know, like I'm, I'm just going to keep uh, repeating the cycle. You know, my grandfather was a convicted felon. My father was a convicted felon. He was a, a gang leader. You know, my grandfather had been shot. My father had been shot in the head before I'd been shot. And I was just like, when is this shit going to ever end? And I don't want this to be the outcome for my son. And um, I called uh, my cousin, who was part of this this thing with me, and I told him that I was done. And he didn't believe me. He asked me, you know, like, what's up? So he's waiting for me to say this code. So we had this kind of code that if any one of us was, was ever caught, that we would give this code word. And that meant to get rid of the, get rid of the stuff and get, and get out and get out of there, get little. Uh, he was like, what's the code? Yeah. And I'm like, no, I'm serious. And he was like, I can't believe you set me up like this. I was like, no, there, there's nobody on the other end. I'm not caught. I just, I'm just done, you know? And, um, I was never under investigation. This was all in my mind. Um, I started, you know, trying to, or would you say, do the right thing, but it was extremely hard because I still was trying to keep up this different persona. I had all these cars and, you know, different properties that I own, but I wasn't able to pay the bill. So now these cars are being repossessed. I'm getting, you know, eviction notices and, um, Lo and behold, my cousin pops back up <laughs> and he's like, man, we miss you. We, we, we need you to come back. And he was like, I got something for you in the truck. And he had just bought the, the new S550 Benz. And I was like, shit, man, you know. And I was like, you know what, cuz, I'm done. And he was like, man, uh, you're a better man than I am. And I was like, no, I'm just ready and you're not. And so uh, that weekend, he was kidnapped and killed. And from that point on, I knew that I had made the right decision. Whoa. That's, that's incredible. Um, thank you for sharing and yeah. being so candid, Curtis. Um, that's a, yeah, that's incredible. Um, so then, then at that point, you just start continuing down the path you get a job how does that yeah I, I, I end up you know i you know um you know being incarcerated and i always and then from uh having a little weight set in the kitchen from a little kid i always kind of you know kept in shape so 
uh, a friend of mine said that we could start personal training. So we started doing <laughs> doing a lot of that. And that was, you know, doing okay. And then um, I got a call from uh, this agency called, uh, it was Ceasefire at the time. And they were this nonprofit group that was doing violence uh, prevention and intervention. And I started, you know, working with them. And then um, I eventually got a call from Father Michael Flager. Uh, because there was this big big war going on between the organization that I used to be a leader of and a couple more organizations. And they were in this four block radius of each other. And I mean, it was like the wild, wild west. They were just shooting and killing each other. So he said, uh, could, did he think that I could get my guys together? And I said, I believe I could. And so uh, we came up with the idea to do this peace basketball league. Uh, we ended up getting Derek Rose, Isaiah Thomas, and a few other people on board. Uh, you know, a lot of people didn't think it would work, but from there, from that point uh, on, I said to myself that there is a place for me in the world that I could take the experience and the background that I had doing uh, bad things and convert that energy into others to try to convince them to do something different. And Father Flager ended up uh, giving me a job. And from that point on, I've been, you know, in this violence prevention and intervention field. So do you feel like that was the key, like finding your purpose and finding your, your why to turn it all around? Yeah, that was it. Right. And then being able to be the father instead of the gang leader, right? I was able to, you know, I was able to go into a whole different character, right? You know, and that felt good. And then being able to have something, to have another mission that I was aligned to was really, was really helpful in my growth and in my process uh, out of the gang culture. Then at, at that time, did you have any more children? Because I know you have, what, four now? <laughs> Yeah, I have four now. So right after I had my son, I had my daughter. Uh, I was in was incarcerated, got out. Then I had another daughter. <laughs> you know? So all of them, you know, I buy my wife. All of my kids, I, I buy by my wife. And so, yeah. Did it? So things, did it change but, having a girl, a little girl? It did, man. Because I was like, man, this is the get back for all the wrong that I've been doing, not only to my <laughs> my wife, but to all the other girls in the process of me coming up, you know. But it it, it changed, and it was, you know, again, you know, I was a father, you know. I didn't have to be, you know, a gang a gang leader anymore, you know? and that felt really, really good. And then also doing the work and being able to try to help others uh, do something different you know, is very, you know, inspiring, inspiring. And like you said, once you find your why, then you're not actually working anymore. You know, you're just doing what you believe you were put on yeah. earth to do. So did that work that you did with Michael, Michael Flager, mm -hmm. did that then move into the work you're doing now with Chicago cred or how did, yeah. how did those two things merge? Yeah. So uh, Arnie Duncan at that particular time was still, with the Obama administration as the secretary of education. And father Mike said he had someone who wanted to meet me and it was uh, Arnie and, and we were talking 
And, you know, at that particular time, I just thought it was another politician coming to talk to me and trying to get my guys in the community that, that I were in for a voters block, right? Because we had been let down before by other politicians, you know? And so we had this conversation. He said that, you know, that he would be back and that he wanted to do something around violence prevention and intervention. Would I be inter- interested in doing something like that? I said, yeah, sure. But I didn't think that he was actually, you know, going to come back. And, you know, a year or so later, he came back and, and offered me a position with, with Chicago Cred. That's great. And so do you spend a lot of your days now with talking to folks in gangs, trying to create peace, or is it people that are getting out and you're helping them stay on the right path? No, I'm talking with those who are actually still heavily involved uh, in trying to uh, create what we call non-aggression agreements and hoping that a non-aggression agreement would lead to a peace treaty. And so uh, what a non-aggression agreement is, is just actually getting folks to agree on a set of terms if you will, during a street war, right? Whether the terms be if we go to, if anyone makes it to this park, they're off limits. Uh, If I'm walking with my son or my grandmother, we're off limits. Or we'll all just play uh, defense instead of offense, meaning we'll stay on our side and you guys stay on your side. Unfortunately, folks shouldn't have to live like that, but that's some of the strategies that that we have to use if we want to see a peaceful neighborhood. And do you find those uh, when someone signs those agreements or agrees to them, are they abiding by them? Some do and some don't. And then some agreements get broken. I guess that's the, the same thing that will happen with, with, you know, any kind of agreement. Unfortunately, with ours, yeah. people lose their lives. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I guess my question was more about uh, do you find that the those have become effective and that have created change? Yeah, sometimes it does. You know, I, I would be, you know, fooling myself if, if I said that all of them, you know, worked. Uh, but we try to get, you know, guys and girls to come to some type of agreement or some type of revo- resolution that uh, they don't have to coexist in the same space, but they have to coexist, if that makes sense. Um, And when you think about, in a lot of these uh, conflicts, there's been a lot of bloodshed and a lot of death to, to get folks to that position that they'll take a defensive approach as opposed to an offensive approach you know, sometimes really, really, really difficult. Uh, but I think we're doing a you know an okay job at it here. And I thought I heard you say somewhere, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on social media and how that's affected things. Because you were oh. saying back in the day, a lot of the reasons were either girls or you yeah. know ego. But now I can see social being a big part of that. Yeah, it's you know if not the biggest reason, one of the biggest reasons that a lot of these conflicts uh, occur is because, you know, you can be really tough and be whoever you want to be and say whatever you want to say behind a keyboard, if you will. And folks don't take real kindly, unfortunately, their mindset is at a a place where they don't take kindly to any kind of disrespect. Um, 
And so there's the disrespect of, of the organization or the crew that they're currently in. And what really drives it is the disrespect of the dead, which we see a lot of, unfortunately. And, and uh, let me go back a little bit to kind of give you a landscape of, of what's happening here. So when I was out uh, doing my thing in, in, in the street life, there were about 20 groups or 20, you know, 20 groups that combined to make this, these super groups. So now there's an estimated 2,000 different groups here in Chicago that really don't have an alliance to anything. They're all their own little clique. They have some alliances with some groups, but there's no coat, there's no uh, structure there. So then they could easily uh, become foes instead of allies. And so that's, you know, that's what's making this thing really, really compli- complicated is, you know, just the amount of different crews and cliques on top of a, a lot of drug use on top of a lot of damn big guns. Yeah, that is, that's fascinating how much that has changed. Yeah. So what, what do you, like, how do you even create strategies to evoke change then? Yeah, that's something that we ask, we ask each other and ourselves, you know, every day, you know, when you think about it, a person is shot here in Chicago every two hours. Um, but, you know, this, this is not a new dilemma, right? We haven't been under 400 homicides since 1965 here in Chicago, right? So this is, this is not new. But without the ability to go with a per se one or two people that's actually in a leadership role to kind of calm things down makes it a lot more difficult. When there's no what we call rules of engagement, it makes it a lot more difficult. Like I say, I call it, you know, when I was around, I called it organized chaos. I call I call this unorganized chaos. Right. Uh, And so every day we're coming up hopefully with innovative and new strategies to help, you know, kind of calm some of these uh, street wars. And all of them are different. You know, all of them started from different reasons. Some have been going on uh, for generations. Some are new. Some are really, really petty and people are still losing their lives. So you have to come up really for a strategy, you know, a different strategy for each one of these conflicts. Do you find the median age of the gang members has changed over time? Yes and no, because different, you know, every group has a different makeup. You know, some groups are really, really young. I mean, from 10, uh, we're working with a few groups now who the leader is 15 or 16, you know. (laughs) Uh, And then you still have some groups that still have some form of structure. And those are some that, you know, that are still holding on to to some of the perimeters of, of the old gang culture. Um. So it varies, you know, it varies. So what is like a 10 years old? That's so young. And when I think mm-hmm. back to your story, it almost feels like you didn't have a chance. You were mm-hmm. born into this and 
you were just doing what kids do, but you were just around certain things that were influencing you in ways you didn't know until it was kind of too late. I mean, decades later, mm-hmm. right? Is that, is that what, like, how soon can you, should you be catching this or giving kids a chance or like said differently, like how do you break this cycle of if it's hitting someone at 10 years old, when do you have to get in front of it to be effective? Preschool, right? (laughs) Because it's one thing that, you know, I think you and I can agree on is that behavior is learned, right? So the quicker that you can unlearn a learned behavior, (laughs) the easier it is, if that makes sense. You know, and so, it, and then when you think about, and I and I talk to some of the young young folks that I deal with all the time, and and some of the um, the other people that that's working with them is that being at such a young age, you haven't even found the things that's worth living for yet, right? You know, you haven't really experienced anything. So when you're dealing with, no matter how old you are, when you're dealing with someone that feels that they don't have anything to lose, it makes it a lot more different. So what we have to do is instill to them that they're worth living, you know, that they are, you know, that they are valuable and there are things that's worth living for and the things that are worth living for are more valuable than what you think is worth dying for, if that makes sense. Right? Because in their mind, you know, they're willing to die for their friend, for their block, you know, because now we're living in a world of popularity, right? Who's the most popular? Who gets the most likes on, on Instagram or you know, Snapchat. And so unfortunately, not only here in Chicago, but in in a lot of the other urban communities, the most popular people are the ones who have the most bodies under their belt, right? So instead of of inspiring, you know, like for me, you know, I had, you know, pimps, players, drug dealers, and and gang leaders to look up to, whatever that consisted of. So now these young brothers and sisters looks up, look up to the people who are the most violent. So that's what they're aspiring to be. I can't help but also think the people that do get, do you find themselves in a situation where they were like you in their early 20s thinking like, how did I get here? Mm-hmm. How much how much of a part does hope play? Does like the real, the realistic view of like, there's another alternative. Like, do people feel like at that point, cause you, it I mean, you kind of even said it, like you even, you had at the time a, a path to mentor others and to create your why. Mm-hmm. But do, if others found purpose, would that, mm-hmm. how would that change the, the current environment oh man that you hit it right on the head right and and that's what you know i find myself doing and i know others that that's also doing the work we're trying to give hope to the hopeless right we're trying to to say 
that there's another way, even though it might, it may not seem like that. And I don't come in saying, if I change, you can change, but that is possible. But there are different roles that people have to take within their journey. And I tell people just because I bumped my head and went to prison and did all that, hopefully you, hopefully I can be an example that you don't have to do the same thing. Right. And, and, and like I said, you hit it right, right on the head, like to give them a sense of hope when a lot of them feel hopeless. How do you do that though? Like how, how can you, cause it's one thing to, to say to someone, you know, there's another path, but when they're actually that day one, when they go to work at the furniture store and <laughs> they feel this sense of like, oh, I don't have my crew anymore. I don't have my, my people around me. And it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how have you seen that be successful with other people? So the first thing that, that you, that, that I feel you have to do is the self differentiation. I mean, how can I, separate myself from the group dynamic, right? And some people are able to do that, but then you have others that just the separation of them from their group won't work. So then what I have to think of is how do I change the dynamic of the group, right? Being involved in a group or organization or or whatever you want to call it, it's not a bad thing. I think it's inherently in our DNA to want to be a part of something, right? So now what I have to work on doing is change the dynamics of the entire group, right? How can I shift the thought process or the mindset of this entire group that they don't have to be as violent as they are? And so if I can change the the dynamic of the group, then that makes it a lot easier for me to be then be able to start what we call the self-differentiation process. Because there's one thing that we know is that unfortunately you know, I don't want to say unfortunately, because again, all groups are not bad. It's just the people or the things that they're doing are bad, right? Uh, groups are not going anywhere. That, that's just going to happen. But what they're doing inside of the group, I think, is the thing that we can change. And it it seems like the the group that is at most risk to me is, and, and you could, I, I'm just (laughs) guessing here by a conversation is the group between like, you know, the 10 years old to 20, right. Where you Mm -hmm. don't, your brain's still developing and you don't really see a way out. I think when you're past 20, maybe you start maturing, you have other life things happen. Like in Mm -hmm. your case, you had a child Mm -hmm. before then you're just, you're kind of, brought up, you, you know, have no control over your environment, who your parents are, all those things that, that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I guess starting from before 10, pre 10, so preschool, like you'd mentioned, are there programs right now that you're a part of, or that, you know, that are going on to help those kids? Yeah. Yeah. A, a, a friend of mine who's doing a phenomenal job, I can't even think of the name of the program, but they're actually starting to work, work with, 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 preschool, with preschoolers and their families, right? Because again, what we're talking about is is generations of folks who've been involved in this street culture. And so that's another approach that we also take is that we have we 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 have to do this uh, this family uh, this family structure. And what I mean by that is that 
just by working with the child doesn't work if we're going to send them into the same environment every day. Yeah, so it's not like they would even know know, as a preschooler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'm not only talking about preschool, I'm talking about even the young men and women that we're working with now. We found that, you know, that we have to work with the whole family systems and their whole social network if we really want to see sustainable change. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. So then kind of going back to what I was saying, that that mm-hmm. is is that like true? Like that the biggest at risk group right now, the hardest to change is between that kind of ten to twenty year old range. It is that a thing or Oh yeah, you yeah, that is that is definitely a thing. Um right now we think that, you know, one of the if not the most violent groups that we work with is the youngest group, right? And so when we when we do these analyses and so what we'll do is we'll go into a community and we'll find all of the groups that's in that community so i'll just take roseland as one community so in roseland there there's 50 different groups right that are in various conflicts you know you have some that may have five conflict conflicts going on you have others that may have only one but the younger group that we're working with a couple of them here are in conflict with probably 30 other groups, right? And every time we go into these uh, these non-aggression agreements, the first thing they say is, can you get a hold of the younger group? Like, if you can get a hold of them, then we think that we could possibly come to the table. So, yeah, we're finding that the younger the group, the, the younger the group is, the more riskier, the more risks they are willing to take. Right, yeah. I, can, I mean, I see that even with crime that you see now with a lot of the um, carjackings that are mm-hmm. going on and more of the violent crimes. It's, it mm-hmm. seems like it's 15 year olds, 14 yeah. year olds. Like, so what can, what can others do to help this? Other than pray. Um, <laughs> you know, I have this saying, I have this saying when I say, if you care, then you're there. Right. And so everybody could help in their own different ways, like, you know, whether it be mentoring, whether it be tutoring, whether it's financial, uh, whether it's uh, trying to help to change the policies that create the conditions in these communities. I think everybody that has a vested interest in seeing not only a better Chicago, but a better world, you know, there's something out there that, that we can do and it don't have to be a whole lot. Just do something. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense and create opportunities, diversity and inclusion in exactly. organizations, you know, um, uh, try to have reform programs. I imagine, like the more yeah. you can create hope and opportunities, the the more I th- I would think chance that you have to for people to take advantage of them. Yeah, and, you, and you're from you're from Chicago. You've been here, and so I tell people all the time, like until we can make uh, Fuller Park or Ogden Park look like Wicker Park and Lincoln Park, then we're going to continue to be fighting backwards, right? So uh, they ask me, you know how can we make the communities better? And I say, just go look at the communities that you feel are doing well and what made those communities thriving, thriving 
and then come to those communities that aren't doing that well and provide those same opportunities. And then the closer that we can get to one Chicago or one community, the better off we'll be. That's right on. That's great advice. So I want to end on a, on another lighter note, because I think, well, one is I, I, I don't want to not say thank you for everything that you are doing for the Chicago community. I know I started this off air by, by saying that as well, but your story, Curtis, is incredible. And I give you a ton of kudos for changing your life and for, you know, taking the path, the path less traveled and being an inspiration to others to give them a path and to give them hope. Yeah, I'm, I'm under the real belief that when you do good things, good things happen for you. And we didn't, you know, really talk about it, but I don't know if you saw it, but, you know, I've never been an actor or writer or consultant. I'm acting and writing on the shy, being a consultant for a Showtime series. So, yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about Chirac and about some of that stuff, you know, to to close up. Yeah. It's uh, amazing. I was able to meet Spike Lee. He's one of my good friends. We're always in contact with each other. So, you know, I sit around the table sometimes with Lorraine Jobs, who's also a friend of mine. You know what I mean? So I just think, man, when you do good things, good things happen for you, you know? Yeah. That, that's one of my mottos, man. I was watching Chirac yesterday. I saw you in it. Yeah. Have you watched The Shy? Yeah. Yeah. I watched The Shy of it, too. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm also in there. You probably didn't notice oh. me. I was a lot bigger. <laughs> <laughs> a lot bigger then, but. Yeah, man. It's just, you know, I think I have a, a, a obligation to give back. It's a thing that I ask myself and I ask a lot of people when I'm having these conversations is that, you know, we could have been born in any century, in any time. Right. But we were born in this particular time. And what will we put on this earth to do in the time that we were born in? And I believe once you find that out, then the sky is the limit. And I think that, you know, why I was put here in this particular time was to go through what I went through to be able to show people that you can go from that and still be okay. Right. And, you know, a lot of times, uh, earned what you earn instead of what you learn or what you earn as well as what you learn when you combine them, I think, you know, people are able to really benefit from those kind of lessons. Yeah. That amen, man. That's uh, so true. And again, I just give you a ton of kudos. And I, I too am under that belief. And I've had good things happen in my life for trying to be a good human being. And I think that goes a lot further than people think. Um, yeah. You know, um, but yeah, I'd, I'd love to meet you in person at some point. I know we're not too far from one another. Yeah, we got to meet, man. I'm thinking about, you know, starting my own podcast down the line. So hopefully you can give me some, some, uh, yeah, some I was going to say, where's your, you got to do a podcast, your book. I mean, your stories are yeah. incredible. I was looking for your book. I couldn't find it anywhere. Yeah, I've been told, you know, again, like I say, when you do good things, good things happen for you. Like when I tell people, that I'm represented by William Morris Endeavor. They like, wait a minute, how are they your? Rep- we're not even represented by them, but we're a big, you know, we're this big to do. And it's yeah. kind of like, uh, it's not even like a, a formal uh, p- partnership. It's just like me and one of the, the founders had a conversation, 
And she said that she would be willing to help me in any way possible and don't want to take any money. She just want to help me to do better. And, yeah. man, and it just happened like that. Yeah. That's great, man. Well, you are a good person and you, you deserve the good things I'm that are happening. <laughs> uh, just one more question as we wrap. How, are, how old are your kids now? Oh, man, you put me on the spot. I don't want to say the wrong thing. <laughs> I think that that headshot may, made me uh, <laughs> 24, 23, 21, and 18. Okay. And do they still all live around the area? I can't get rid of them, man. They all, <laughs> you know, instead of the, you know, other than the yeah. ones that's at, in college, you know, I have my, my youngest, she's going to college this year, but they're still around, man, you know. And, yeah. and I love having them. I love having them. They keep me grounded. Good deal. No, that's that's fantastic. Well, Curtis, thanks again, man, for the story, the lessons, and and just you being an inspiration to the to the community. Uh, I can't thank you enough, my friend. Thank you for having me. And you know, I believe that you're doing a great thing. I saw some of your other episodes on Not Almost There, man. And just keep doing your thing. And, keep helping folks and keep getting these stories out to hopefully inspire others. Definitely. Definitely. Thank you. Man. Oh man. Thank you, Curtis, for sharing your journey and the strength and courage that you had to change your life and get out of a systemic cycle and to really change the future for your children and your family heritage. As you know, I like to boil down each episode into actionable takeaways. And today was just a really unique one to me. It was one to give back, to do something. We can all agree that there's a problem, but putting those words into action is what really makes an impact. At Curtis said, if you can't donate action, donate time. If you can't donate time, then donate monetarily. I will also say that if you think about what Curtis has overcame in his life and you reflect on challenges you may have, hopefully that has given you the inspiration to know no matter where you're at, there is an opportunity to turn things around. If you can get out of the predicaments and the situations that Curtis had been in his entire life, kind of born into without a fighting chance, then I'm sure you can figure out how to accomplish great things in yours. Again, I can't thank you enough for being a subscriber and for listening to the show. It means the world to me. Remember, you, me, we are not almost there.